friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us again this week on Conversations. We are so glad. Co-host Maureen Ferguson, we are so honored, both of us and also all our listeners, to welcome back to the show George Weigel. He's the biographer of John Paul II. He's also the Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's a tremendously prolific author. I'm always so impressed. And it's called To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II. But first, we have our dear friend of the show, Father Ben Keeley, with us of Nazarene.org, alongside the composer of the beautiful Mass, a first of, of this type, a Mass for the Persecuted Christians, composer Paul Jernberg is joining us as well. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you, Gracie. Thank you very much. Father, the persecuted church has always been, uh, obviously, it's a huge part of your life. You devote uh, all your energies, almost all your energies, to Nazarene.org. Why a Mass for the persecuted Christian? What's the significance of, of this Mass? Well, the, the why is because of the wonderful man that you're also interviewing t- today, uh, Paul, who, uh, through the providence of God, you know, I've been trying, as you know, the listeners probably know, I've been trying to put... Uh, icons, uh, an icon of Our Lady in different churches or cathedrals as a shrine for persecuted Christians. We just last month put one in London, and we're putting one uh, on the 21st of October in Clinton, Massachusetts. And through the province of God, two, two summers ago, I met Paul. We began to talk and got on like a house on fire, and he started to talk about possibilities. And then out of the blue, he offered this incredible thing to write an entire mass for the persecuted Christians, the first ever. And this is going to be premiered, the world premiere on October the 21st at this shrine blessing in the presence of the Bishop of Worcester, Massachusetts. So really it's all down to Paul. I mean, I'm, I'm putting the icons in trying to, but this, this beautiful work of art and, and work of prayer, which uh, he will tell you more about, is, is, is all down to him and his generosity. Uh, so, Paul, what attracted you to this project? What got you started down this road? Well, I'd, I'd say, first of all, it was, in a sense, a lot of it was through Father Ben, uh, listening to him previously, because even before we met, I had heard him speak about the, the plight of so many persecuted Christians, and I'm aware through other other ways as well that I've heard so much, and it is it resonates their this uh their suffering resonates so deeply for me whether it be the the christians in the middle east or in nigeria or in china or you know throughout the world and there's such a it is such a an important thing that we catholics and as christians in the united states are aware of them and can pray for them and can help them in any way we can and just seeing that the media is ignoring this so almost completely that it was very much on my heart so when when i met father ben this opportunity to sort of the inspiration sort of fell in my lap so to speak that this would be a wonderful thing to be able to actually compose settings for this mass it possibly could be a way 
to help other people become more aware of the situation and heighten their awareness as Father Ben is working on, you know, this idea of people need just, first of all, to be aware and then to be able to pray and then to do what they can. So I'm, I'm very much on board with, with, with the mission of Nazarene.org. Sometimes an inspiration to do some, a, a certain project, it just sort of seems evident. This is possible and it seems like all the supports are there. Just went straight ahead with that. Thankfully, it, you know, the, the music was, I was able to compose the music within most of it, I would say this early this year and uh, completed it by about April. I think it was finished by about April of this year. Does it feel to you, Paul, as though this, this act of creation is something that you're helping the persecuted Christians? It's an actual physical way of, of being present to them. I, mean, I know yes. physical is probably not the right term, but no. a, a way of making your, your prayer something material and physical that other people can be inspired by for sure it's 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 that right is exactly that sense of somehow touching you know to, to to connect with these people through in a mysterious way through our music but also you know it, it gets this is something that's come up in the last week or two too as we've been working here on all the many preparations is that the first goal you might say is always to glorify God. Ultimately, that's what we're all trying to do through our work. So it, it's not as if it's a political, primarily a political activity that we're involved in. It's primarily a question of worshiping God and praying to God. And, and the music that, that I compose or that any you know Catholic composer composes, we always need to keep that in mind, that this is its mass. This is about the worship of God. And we're united together in that worship. And then through that worship, we have a, a deep communion with our brothers and sisters, including those who are persecuted. Yes, <laughs> in answer to your question. <laughs> I do say it is in the midst of that, in that context, yes, it's a way of, of, of sort of touching or, or of being in closer contact. And we actually have a deacon from Baghdad who will be with us. He's Chaldean, by ritual, Chaldean and Roman rite, and he will be participating in the mass as well. So that, and he has friends and family who are experiencing this firsthand in Iraq. So that's, that's a, a real grace for us too. Father Ben, when you, every time you speak about the persecuted Christians, uh, whether it's uh, on the radio or on TV or on in person, which I've heard you so many times and you always do so, so movingly and, and in a way that really, that really alerts people to the urgency of the situation and, and how much suffering there is. In, in all these lands. But whenever you talk about it, you people say, well, what can we do? And the first thing you always say is, pray. We all must pray. And, and I see that this Mass is part of, of that effort to, to bring the plight of the persecuted Christians into all of our prayers in a, in a way that's, that's sustained and strong and, 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 and always, always bringing their plight up to, to God's attention. Absolutely, Gracie. And I think this is, it can sometimes be or feel a little bit negative. I mean, not that we can say anything positive, particularly about the persecution of the church, except that Christ promised it. And obviously in his divine plan, there is a, there's a reason. But often we can feel slightly hopeless, perhaps. And I know mm -hmm. people can feel that because they do. They say, what can we do? We can do nothing. And when I say, I, you know, I've said it many times, I say prayer is not a last resort. Prayer is a first resort. And it's not weak. Prayer is is very, very powerful. And as Paul said, the Mass is this great act of, the greatest act of worship. And I'm convinced, first and foremost, this is something very, very positive. The first Mass in the world 
for persecuted Christians, um, the, the second shrine in America, the third shrine now in the world. And I'm praying that more more bishops will be open to this. I mean, we give them we give them the the icon, and they and this is a place of prayer then in their diocese, but also to for more people to sing the mass that, that Paul has created. But it's a very positive thing, and the power of the prayer calls down blessings. There's there's no doubt about it. I mean, the other thing I quote often is that section in the Acts of the Apostles when St. Paul is in prison. And we're told in the Acts of the Apostles, the church prayed constantly. And what happened? Paul's angel came and freed him from prison. So we must never doubt. Sometimes it's strange. We Christians almost doubt the power of prayer. If we were praying in a sustained way throughout the world, like at the uh, at the time of the Battle of Lepanto, which we've just celebrated, the feast day of Our Lady of the Rosary just recently, that power of that prayer literally saved the Western world from the Islamic invasion. So imagine if we had the whole world praying uh, together, if we had a mass in every country in the world singing, singing Paul's mass and praying, um, there would be, I think we would have some pretty remarkable uh, uh, occurrences happening. I agree, Father, and it's true that we we tend to think that our prayers aren't going to change the course of history or, or the course of any individual lives, right? We say, well, well, God's in charge and He'll figure it out. But on the other hand, when when we have a terrible difficulty in our lives, we so appreciate other people's prayers. I think that's when we feel the huge possibility of the help of prayer, when we are in grief. So I, I imagine people who are being persecuted for their faith in, in the Middle East to know that other people are praying for them all over the world, to know that a mass is being offered for them for the first time, that uh, that that would be a, a beautiful thing for them to be informed of. I can tell you for of. sure that, that, yes, because sometimes they have said, sadly to me, that they feel neglected and they feel that the Western Church doesn't care for them. And I can tell you that people in Nigeria, priests or bishops and, and in Iraq and Syria, Lebanon, to hear that this mass is going on, to, to know that the shrines are, are being put in, they are overjoyed. They're so grateful. It's, it's, it's humbling, really. They're grateful that we're doing this. But it's our minimum duty. I'm sure Paul would agree that this is it's our minimum duty to be, to, to be doing this. So uh, unfortunately, many people most people won't be able to listen to the Mass and listen to it live and be present. But if our listeners wanted to hear the music that you compose, Paul, how do they do that? They can either go, if they would like to listen, we have almost all of the parts of the Mass recorded on SoundCloud. Oh, good. Or, or posted on SoundCloud. So they can go there. And then one by one, we're also posting them with, with video also on YouTube. So but how? If, where where would they, how would yes, they access they, it? They can go, to, if they go to just put in my name, Paul Jernberg, and on YouTube, they will find my channel in which they'll find these those videos. You can also put in, I think, Mass for Persecuted Christians mm -hmm. on YouTube. And now it's very interesting, though. I've been running into some blocks on media when I put those words. So I think, but I think my name will get it. They can also go to pauljernberg.com. They will find a lot of the music. They'll find the links to the SoundCloud uh, music there as well. Mm -hmm. PaulJernberg.com and Jernberg for our listeners is spelled with a J J E R N B E R G. That's yes? right. Yes. Father, the you mentioned, I think you mentioned Bishop Robert McManus is going to be helping to celebrate the Mass. What's his connection to to Nazarene.org or to the greater to the greater picture of? Uh, uh, Christian persecution. Well, he has no connection to to Nazarene.org, but um, one of the things I I really want the shrines to be blessed by the bishops. I want mm -hmm. them to be to be given an as it were some official status because 
any priest could probably have uh, have a shrine in his church and but it it gives it not not only sort of the authority but it shows it's important and again through paul it's not through me i have met bishop mcmanus before i have spoken at an event where he was and we had a, a lovely discussion at dinner but it's through paul again that he he asked the bishop to be part of this and to be he will be there he will be uh, blessing the icon so it gives it that that sort of official status and it's very important uh, that he He's showing to his diocese, at least, as I said, I mean, I'm, I, I'm slightly, I've been slightly irritated. I have to say <laughs> that one or two bishops have actually been offered this and, and, and really have pretty much said no, which I find rather odd. But as I said, I'm hoping more, more bishops will take this, take this up. And I think Bishop McManus is, is giving us a great lead. We did put the first shrine in New York in 2017, and it was, as it were, a bit blessed by Cardinal Dolan. He wasn't physically present, but he wrote a letter uh, applauding it and, 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 and blessing, as it were, the shrine and saying that he's approved of it. But this will be the first time, apart from in London, that the bishop, the ordinary, is there blessing it and saying this is important for his, his diocese. But, but once again, as I said, it's, it's really Paul that, that organized all of this. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, talking to our old friend, Father Ben Keeley of Nazarene.org, about the first ever Mass for persecuted Christians taking place October 21st. We're also talking to the composer of the beautiful Mass, Paul Jernberg. Paul, when you first heard about this project, was this something that, that fit neatly into the work that you've been doing? Because I know this is not a first for you. Is it? Does it fit neatly into yeah. into your artistic expression, or was it was it a reach? Oh no, it was very much uh, very much in continuity with my work because the the work that I do full time now. I'm director of the Magnificat Institute of Sacred Music. So, and what I do there is I, I'm composing music for the liturgy all the time. Oh, wonderful! Uh, and doing recordings and giving workshops and so forth. So that's really the the focus of my work. While I, while I really appreciate and love all different kinds of music, my particular mission is really in sacred music and, and, and composing music for the liturgy and helping people, helping parishes, priests, music directors, etc., to, to see how that how that can be implemented. So, um, because it's never a matter of just of giving music, sheet music to somebody, and that somehow that's going to miraculously change things. So, we're really working for a renewal of sacred music in the church. Sort of return, you might say, to a place of spiritual depth and of integrity. Not in, Integrity, I mean, just having all the different essential components together. So, part of that is, is, is composing, but part of it is helping Catholic musicians to see how to do this, how, you know, musically, how it should fit in harmony with our traditions. So anyway, all that said, this project is very much in continuity because even though I, I wasn't particularly involved with persecuted Christians before this, um, it's very, this, you know, composing the propers, which are the parts that are particular to this mass and the ordinary is just very much what I do. <laughs> so it's a, uh, it's a very natural fit. So this is, maybe this is a, a far field from, from the persecuted Christians and I don't want to lose mm -hmm. our focus on that, but yeah. how do you see the state of, of sacred music in the United States? Yeah. And I've worked in several, a, a number of parishes, both in Illinois and Massachusetts and sometimes in, in France as well, a little bit in Sweden. It, but the I would say that I've 
always met many good-willed, uh, devout people who are have devoted themselves to doing as best they can the music in our parishes, and they deserve our appreciation mm-hmm. and thanks. Having said that, I think from you know taking a, zooming out a little bit that there is a a major problem, and that is that we've lost the connection to our, our great traditions. We, we've, it's as if we've been cut off mm. from them. And, and so we've, after, after the second Vatican council and I, whose documents are a great inspiration for me, by the way, uh, there was something that happened that was not in the, in the documents at all. And that is that there was a, a real strong movement to use what you might call popular styles mm-hmm. of secular music to go forward for the purpose of drawing people into this full participation, right? So there might've been a, a real good motivation there, this idea of participation. So how do we do that? Well, let's use music that people are familiar with through the, the popular culture and, and maybe, you know, make it as sort of sacred as we can. But the, the problem being then that we lose, we lost, uh, in general, a sense of the transcendent, the nature of the music, the sacred nature of it, which had been. Now, it's not as if sacred music was great right before the Second Vatican Council. The people, you know, I, I'm a, I came into the church as an, as an adult, so I, I can't speak from much experience prior to Vatican II, but the people who have studied this tell me that it wasn't really great, at least in the United States, you know, most parish you visit was not as if mm-hmm. there was just great sacred music going on. There was a lot of sent what we might call sentimental music that was very popular. But so anyway, we, as I see it to try to put it in a nutshell, we've lost, we've lost the connection with our sacred, with our great traditions East and West of sacred music. And we need to reconnect, but it's not only doing old things. In fact, if we are, we simply focus on doing what was done a hundred years ago or 500 years ago, it doesn't really, it doesn't really satisfy the demands of charity and, and of worship because, and this is what I think is so, one of the things so beautiful about the documents of Vatican II is they talk about this sense of being deeply rooted in our, our traditions of chant and polyphony, but then bring, they, it's asking composers to, to bring forth new works that, now these are my own words, but that will resonate with holiness and beauty mm-hmm. <laughs> in people mm-hmm. today and draw people, not only the, the, the choir, so to speak, but draw people in the church, draw people from everywhere, from all walks of life, into the the beauty of holiness into the beauty of uh, into the reality of the worship of god and so this is uh <laughs> that's and i think see i think some people think it's impossible to have both roots and tradition no. and to speak effectively and that's that's our that's that's my call, what i sense is i'm called to do the best of my ability well, I, I think that's that that it's wrong to say that you that, that's impossible because and I see it in so many young people that are are looking for a church that that has 
that expresses that beauty of God in music and yeah, yeah. in sacred in this in the sacred way of doing things. Um, mm. And and they're young and and they're still mm. saying no no I I want to feel different when I walk into church. I want to feel my soul yeah. elevated on every level, visual right. and and oral and yes how wonderful I love your I, I I thank you for for sharing your your philosophy with us. It's it's very lovely and and I'm sure it resonates with our listeners. Father, a great deal. There's a great deal of uh, politeness going on in this conversation. Yes, Gracie. we're being very polite. I'm thinking of the, the the all the people who do so so yes. much hard work at church, and I don't want you're to being, denigrate them being, in any uh, way. You're being Fa- both very diplomatic, but as a parish priest, because <laughs> before I took on this ministry, I was a parish priest for a long time, and I was very very lucky in my last parish with extremely fine musicians and and that was part of my very much part of my ministry as a priest trying to help people worship the lord and the beauty of holiness but and it's no denigration of those who are who are doing that ministry but uh, i think the 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 truth is a, a call as it were is emerging for the kind of thing that paul is creating that beauty so that we can worship god and and people are touched i mean if you go to his youtube channel and you hear some of his music and his other masses i mean you just a they're very singable which i think that's one of paul's things as well that mm-hmm. It's no good writing something so elevated that a, that a fairly normal parish choir couldn't deal with. Mm-hmm. And this is what we're hoping with this Mass for Persecuted Christians also, that eventually, please God, it will be able to be sung in 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 parishes or at least fairly fairly large parishes with 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 a with a good choir that's our hope paul isn't it really oh very much so was paul's his view of sacred music and and what it ought to be doing and the way it ought to be uh, played and sung was that what drew you to ask paul to to write this mass uh well he <laughs> he offered <laughs> you didn't ask I mean, there was a, i mean it's actually very humbling i mean i can tell the story if we have time quickly we, so we, we do. met at this conference so we met at this conference we happened happened by chance by coincidence to sit next to each other at supper the first night and we talked and we got on very well and Paul said you know I'd love to help in some way and I thought yeah great and then the second night we happened to sit next to each other again and we talked even more and he and he spoke and I think you're great this isn't he he's a nice chap and then I actually googled him and I said oh okay I'm talking to a real Catholic composer here, <laughs> and that was humbling for me. And I listened to what I love about his music in particular is there's a very Eastern style to it in English, but you know that non uh, non accompanied music which the Eastern Church does so beautifully, and that really pulled me in. And he said, "Yes, I'm gonna. I'd like to write a mass." And I said, um, "Oh, that's." That's very kind. Well, let's take a moment and listen to one of one of the songs. It's called "Look to Your Covenant, O Lord." Paul, tell us about this. What? How did this? How does this music convey? From the introit, this is it's the the text in the Roman Missal for the introit. Introit, and so that's my my foundation, so to speak. I start with the text, and I meditate on the text, and I'm praying with the text, and then there's a whole process of you know of try of singing. I, I usually work first of all by singing the text and, <laughs> and and looking for an inspiration, you might say. But the, the the interesting thing about this is that it needs to be in harmony with the theme of the mass of persecuted Christians, right? So there's a great deal, a great deal of tremendous suffering 
that we're dealing with here. So it can't be superficial or it can't be happy-go-lucky in any way. That would spoil it. It would just destroy the, the the sense of praying for persecuted Christians. But on the other hand, it can't be overly dramatic. It can't be theatrical either. So I'm not trying to write a movie score, you know, about perfect persecuted Christians. That, that might be very uh, beautiful in its own way and might engage the appropriate emotions. But the thing is in the mass, you need to go in a sense, of course, there's there is emotion in it, but you have to go deeper than the emotions. It has mm-hmm. to somehow stir people to resonate with people in that deep place where they they're worshiping God, and 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 so that's that's like an almost impossible task. For me to say. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, how how do you how do you somehow uh, reach that level? And I think the only answer is it's it's a question of praying hard praying constantly to the Holy Spirit and, 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 and being attentive. And then also uh, listening, you know, after, after these inspirations come, you know, being willing to say either it's good or it's not. And, it, and it, so there's an aspect of perseverance there too, until, until it really does work, that it has that sense of being prayer, of being fitting in the mass, the whole, and, and, and that thanks be to God, that's, that's, that was my sense with this one, that it was a gift, you might say, that it's, there's a lot of hard work involved, obviously, in, in, in composing music like this. There's a lot of time, and, but it's, um, it's, it's a mystery to me how it can, in a way, how it can come together. I'm not copying Eastern melodies. I'm not copying this, or I'm not trying to evoke, okay, now I've got this emotion I'm going to evoke. No, but there is a, there's a dimension of sorrow in it that I uh, that is appropriate, I think. But I hope there's also a real strong dimension of hope that that should be infused in this, because you know it's the the, the final beatitude: "Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake." Blessed are those, and this is a paradox, right? Because we mm-hmm. we should be mourning, we should be crying and doing everything we can and praying our with our whole hearts for these people. But at the same time, we should be affirming Christ's promise. That that this is that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, Paul, what a what a what a what a lovely treat to be allowed uh, to hear about the the artistic process and and to me it sounds like there's it's a kind of prayer too that everything that that you do in your in your creative work is uh, is a part of your prayer life. That's that's very beautiful yeah. to to know that and to hear that from you. Yeah. So, Thank you. please to all our listeners go to. Uh, www.pauljernberg.com where I think hopefully you can connect to all of that to all the beautiful music of the the first Mass for Persecuted Christians thank you for joining us Paul and Father Ben tell us when will the Mass be held uh, so we can pray along the Mass is on October the 21st at St. John the Evangelist Church in Clinton, Massachusetts and I believe it's 7 o'clock is that right Paul? that's right so, and, and please God, uh, at some point, uh, people will be able to see more of it even on EWTN, we hope, uh, if, if God wills. Oh, well, I hope that's true, and we'll certainly announce it here on EWTN Radio. Thank you Thank both you, of you, gentlemen, for joining us. You're Thank welcome. you so much. Thank you so much.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. I'm starting off the show today with my co-host, Maureen Ferguson. We are so honored, both of us and also all our listeners, to welcome back to the show George Weigel. He's the biographer of John Paul II. He's also the Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and author of several books, including a new book out this month. He's a tremendously prolific author. I'm always so impressed. And it's called To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II. Welcome to the show, George. Thank you, Gracie. Nice to see you, see you and Maureen. Congratulations on a, on a new book. I was going over your bibliography. It's huge, the, the number of books that you've written. It's amazing I, I that this, you find the time to write yet another. I think this may be the most important thing I've done since the John Paul II biography. Wow. There is a tremendous amount of confusion, uh, indeed ignorance, about the Second Vatican Council throughout the church. And I thought on its 60th anniversary, I would take a shot at dealing with that confusion and address three big questions. Mm -hmm. Why was the council necessary? What did the council actually teach? And how is the council to be authoritatively interpreted. And if I succeeded in doing that, then I hope this will create a more uh, enlightened conversation within the church about the implementation of Vatican II. Okay, before, before we get to those very important three questions, why was the Vatican Council experienced as such an earthquake? Um, the council was called to renovate the face of Catholicism, mm -hmm. not to reinvent Catholicism. Mm -hmm. The argument between renovation and reinvention actually started during the council itself mm -hmm. and continued afterwards in a hyperventilated cultural moment known as the 60s. So there really was no time for the better part of 20 years for a calm, reflective, serious examination of those three big questions. Why was this necessary? What was actually taught? How are we to understand that? That's what the pontificates of John Paul II and Benedict XVI did. They are a 35-year single arc of interpretation, authoritative interpretation, of the Second Vatican Council. And the living parts of the world church today, the vibrant parts of the world church today, are the parts of the church that understand that and are living that interpretation offered by John Paul II and Benedict XVI. George, you talk in your book about the importance in understanding the council, you have to understand the person of Pope John XXIII. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Why understanding who he is and where he came from is so important to understanding his motivation for convening the council and, and what was done there? John XXIII had a rather different career path, if we can call it that, to the chair of St. Peter than, than many of his predecessors. Uh, he was not a son of aristocrats or socially well-placed professionals. He was the son of dirt-poor northern Italian peasants. Uh, he was not a theologian or a canon lawyer. He was a historian. And his particular historical interest was the work of St. Charles Borromeo in reforming the Catholic Church in Milan in the wake of the, uh, the Protestant Reformations. He had had a distinctive experience of the 20th century. He was an army chaplain during the First World War. He had served as a Vatican diplomat in the Balkans, kind of on the peripheries of Europe uh, during the Second World War. 
he had helped Jews escape the Holocaust. He had been sent to France as the Vatican representative there and saw a church that had been shattered for almost 150 years by an ongoing fight between royalists and republicans. He came to the papacy with a very clear understanding that uh, world civilization was in crisis in the mid-20th century, and the church had to be able to address that. And it would best address it by renovating its face, by proclaiming Jesus Christ as the answer to the question that is every human life, and by modeling what authentic human community looked like. So John Paul II, John XXIII's original intention for Vatican II was that it would rekindle the church's Christ-centered imagination for mission, for evangelization. And of course, we celebrate his feast day this week. Um, so great, great timing here. Um, George, your your summary of your book in the Wall Street Journal um, is so fantastic. I recommend it as well as the book to all of our listeners, of course. But you you point to John the 23rd's opening address as really just doing a great job of summarizing the purpose. And you you say that he said that the greatest concern of the council must be the more effective presentation of Catholic truth in full. Uh, you know, what the Pope calls the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine. So tell us how you think the church ought to be doing this and how effective we've been in the last 60 years of a more um, effective presentation of Catholic truth in full, as you say. Well, let's look, Maureen, at the two crucial documents of Vatican II. There are 16 documents of the council, but they're not all of the same magisterial weight or teaching authority. The two most important documents are the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation and the dogmatic constitution on the church. Both of them do exactly what John the 23rd wanted. They present the ancient truths really given to the church by Christ in a fresh and compelling way. The dogmatic constitution on divine revelation uh, insists that God does speak into the world. He speaks into history. God enters history, first through his self-revelation to the people of Israel, later to in his self-revelation through the, the person of his son, the incarnate word of God. This is not a myth. This is not fiction. This is not pious legend. This is all real. That's very important to say. And it also says something about us. It The dogmatic constitution of divine revelation says we are more than congealed stardust. We are the kind of creatures who can hear a word from God. Hmm. And that's a noble understanding of, of the human person. The dogmatic constitution on the church is perhaps the clearest example of the kind of development of self-presentation that characterized the Second Vatican Council. The dogmatic constitution on the church is deeply biblical. It draws on dozens of biblical images to explain the church. The, the preconciliar Catholic theology tended to be an exercise in logic. It was a lot of syllogisms. And that's important to demonstrate the truths of the faith and how they, how they all hang together. But uh, in, a in a world that had grown irreligious, disenchanted, something richer was needed. And that biblical imagery used in 
the dogmatic constitution of the church to describe the church as the people God is leading through history to the consummation of history, which is eternal life with God himself. That's a fresh, compelling way to look at the church. Before the church is an institution, before the church is bricks and mortar and rectories and convents and schools and hospitals, it's an encounter with the Son of God. It's an encounter with the Blessed Trinity. It's an encounter uh, with the one who is leading us and who asks us to take the same path through history that he is taking. If you're just joining in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm here with my co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson. We're talking to George Weigel, the distinguished biographer to John Paul II and author of several books, including his brand new one out this month called To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II. George, you mentioned earlier, we talked briefly about how Vatican II caused an earthquake in the church. And I want to quote from your article. In the decade after the council concluded on December 8, 1965, tens of thousands of priests and religious sisters abandoned their rectories and convents in the largest such exodus since the 16th century Reformation. You mentioned briefly that it was a, a it was the Vatican, it was Vatican II interacting with this hyper strange time of the 1960s and this, this time of, of, of terrible upheaval. Um, can you elaborate on that, please? Uh, it's very important in analyzing the successes and failures of the Second Vatican Council uh, not to commit the logical fallacy of thinking that everything that happened after the Council happened because of the council. Mm. Uh, there were multiple causal factors involved in, for example, that mass exodus from, from rectories and convents. One of the factors involved was obviously the inadequacy of preconciliar seminary formation and religious formation in communities of religious women. This is why I, I really cannot understand this notion that one finds among many young people today that everything was just fine in the Catholic Church before the Second Vatican Council. Therefore, the Council was a terrible mistake uh, because look at all these terrible things that happened afterwards. Well, if everything was so fine before the Council, why did the people most recently formed uh, in those seminaries and religious houses of formation, lead the charge out of out of consecrated life and out of the priesthood. Why did the most tradition bound, even hide bound, parts of the church like Ireland and Quebec collapse so comprehensively over the last fifty years? Uh, everything was not fine in the Catholic Church prior to Vatican II. There were issues that needed to be addressed. There were uh, there was the whole question that we've just discussed uh, before about how does the church present itself and present Christ in a world that had become irreligious and disenchanted. Uh, that the council dropped, so to speak, that those um, uh, 16 documents fell into the cultural tsunami of the mid to late 1960s uh, certainly made the reception of Vatican II far more difficult and contributed to this false notion 
that the council was about reinventing the church. The council was not about reinventing the church. It was about Christifying the world. George, could you elaborate on those two misunderstandings a little bit? You said, you know, to the sort of bunker mentality traditionalists who um, think everything was fine prior to the council. Could you elaborate what was not fine um, in your analysis? And then um, would also love to get to those who, um, as you say so, uh, uh, hilariously in your uh, Wall Street Journal article that those who took Vatican II as an invitation to teach and live Catholic light are demonstrating that Catholic light leads inevitably to Catholic zero. <laughs> and you, you, you know, you point there to the example of the secularization of Europe and the um, empty churches there. But, um, but could you start with the, the misunderstanding of those who have the bunker mentality that we just need to go back to pre-Vatican II uh, times? Well, I think I just described some of that. Um, the faith was not going to be communicated in the late modern world by simple question and answer catechisms. Uh, if that had been true, then my generation, I mean, I grew up with simple question and answer catechisms in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Uh, if that had been so effective, why did maybe three-fifths, four-fifths of my elementary school classmates cease practicing the faith when they became teenagers or adults? Uh, it just it did not communicate the faith adequately. Uh, and that's because of the, the nature of the late modern world. We are no longer living in cultures that help transmit the faith. We're living in cultures that are hostile to the faith. So there has to be a personal encounter with Christ. There has to be an experience of the church as authentic human community. There has to be an experience of the sacraments as an encounter with the living God. If you don't have that, then you get Quebec and Ireland. You get complete crash and burn within, within two generations. Um, that's that's very sad, but um, uh, I do think this romanticism about the preconciliar church is based on a profound ignorance of history uh, and a deep misunderstanding uh, of the dynamics of evangelization and catechesis. The church has changed its mode of presenting those enduring truths throughout history because it is dealing with different cultural situations mm -hmm. and we've talked about this on your program before the you know the, at the very beginning in the first three to four centuries in christianity uh once that early church which had been so successful in converting so much of the mediterranean world fully came up from underground if you will and encountered classical culture, it had to deal with classical culture. Mm -hmm. It couldn't simply maintain the simple proclamation, Jesus is Lord. It had to translate that into creed and dogma. This process goes on throughout history. Uh, it's always a challenge, um, but the living parts of the world church today, as I continue to insist, are those that have really embraced Vatican II's teaching, and are living it 
according to the authoritative interpretation given it by John Paul II and Benedict XVI. And, and George, I know we only have just a, a couple minutes left, but who are the great communicators in the church today? What what are the who, who's doing this in your opinion? I mean, for example, the focus uh, missionaries do um, an amazing job of reaching out to college students with that you know Christocentric uh, message. So, wh- what elements in the church are are doing a good job? Do you think? Um, we're, we're living in a kind of golden age of Catholic campus ministry in the U.S. today. Focus is one expression of that. Great Catholic campus ministries like the one at Texas A&M University, which is in deep mourning this week because they just lost to Alabama. <laughs> 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 um, uh, programs like the Thomistic Institute run out of the Dominican House of Studies here in Washington. Fantastic. High-level Catholic content to university campuses around the country, Bishop Barron's Word on Fire Institute. Uh, there's a, there are so many innovative and creative ways of, of uh, presenting the faith and inviting people into the community of faith that I think, you know, have something to teach the world church. I mean, our experience here in the church in, in the United States is not simply a negative experience. Uh, and we should stop believing the media, which tells us that that's the case. Well, George, we're out of time. It's, as always, a great honor to have you on on Conversations with Consequences. And we will uh, we will look out for your book. Um, where can we buy the book? It's called To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II. It's available at all of the usual uh, places, your local Catholic bookstore, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can order it directly from Basic Books. Um, uh, uh, makes a great Christmas present. <laughs> and let me remind our listeners that earlier in the show, Mr. Weigel told us he thinks it's his most important book since the biography of John Paul II, the Great. And so it behooves us to read it. Thank you very much, Mr. Weigel. Thank you for having me. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, as Jesus will ask us a haunting question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The question seems to be more than rhetorical. Jesus asks it, it appears, because he's not convinced that when he comes, he's going to find faith. We're living in an age and culture in which many seem to be drifting away from the faith. Recent surveys have shown that 65% of American adults say that they're Christian, down 12 percentage points in just a decade. Those who describe themselves as atheists, agnostics, and nothing in particular are now at 26% of the population, up from 17% in 2009. Catholics are now just 20% of the adult population, down from 23% a decade ago. We've all seen the consequences of these trends, which have led to the shuttering of some churches, schools, convents, and seminaries. We've seen it among our family members and friends whom we know and love who are no longer practicing. We've seen it in empty seats in many Catholic parishes. This is all a result ultimately of spreading secularism in our culture and within our homes. Secularism, as Pope Benedict once incisively defined it, is living as if God did not exist. One may still believe in God, but one lives like everybody else, like those who do not believe. We watch the same programs and listen to the same podcasts. We make the same choices on Monday through Saturday and eventually start making them on Sunday too. We start making them at the beginning of life, at the end of life, and in the middle of life. And even though we never consciously made a choice against God, 
Our life is structured almost entirely without him. That's why Jesus' question is so timely. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus' point in asking the question is certainly not to get us afraid of the future or frightened of his ambushing us unawares at a moment we least expect. It's meant to help us never to take our faith for granted. Faith is a gift of God, but it's also a virtue, a moral muscle that we're called to exercise and make stronger. Jesus wants to fortify our faith. This Sunday, he shows us how to buttress it in the parable of the persistent widow seeking justice against an unjust judge. If even an unjust judge finally heeded the request of a persistent widow for justice, how could God the just judge refuse the persevering request of a beloved son or daughter. Jesus says that the real test of whether we'll find faith in us is whether when he comes, he'll find us persevering in prayer. That doesn't mean necessarily that we're going to be on our knees or finger in the rosary or lingering in church. It means that he's going to find us seeking to unite our whole day in life, our mind, heart, and soul to him. Prayer is faith in action. We live as we pray and we pray as we live. And if we're going to be found faithful, we will be found prayerful. That's why Jesus teaches us through the parable, not about the suggestion or the helpful idea of praying always without growing weary, but about the necessity of doing so. He seeks to show us how to cry out to God day and night. He wants to train us to live that way so that no matter what time he comes, we will be in existence made prayer, united to the Lord in a prayer of our whole life. The reality is that many people do not pray with the grid of the importune woman in the Sunday's gospel, crying out for justice. Many Catholics don't persevere in prayer. They're content on praying a little, saying a Hail Mary or two at the beginning or end of the day. Others would like to pray more, but don't think they have time because they're prioritizing so many other things in life over a life-changing time with God. Others, because of a bad experience or other reasons, stop praying altogether as an ordinary activity of life, only turning to prayer in times of crisis. Even priests and religious brothers can sometimes begin cutting corners on their prayers, just getting them in as a duty, and eventually not getting them in at all, except at times when they professionally have to pray as part of their obligations. In short, many Christians don't persist tenaciously in growing in communion with God in prayer. To all of us, Jesus is speaking about the persevering faith he wishes to find in our prayer, hoping to open us up to receive his grace precisely so that we can pray in this way. Jesus wants to help us to learn to pray with persistence because he knows that that is the best means to form us to persevere faithfully and heroically in life. Well, Francis once explained that Jesus' words about the necessity of praying always without giving up leads us to deepen a very important aspect of the faith. God invites us to pray with insistence, not because he doesn't know what we need or because he doesn't listen to us, but because the fight against evil is hard and long and requires patience and resistance. There's a struggle to carry on every day, but God is our ally, faith in him is our strength, and prayer, the Pope concludes, is the expression of this faith. In short, we can't win the battle to remain faithful on willpower alone. We need to be praying continuously to the Lord for his help, and God wants to train us to recognize this, because the stakes can't be bigger. When we persevere in prayer, when we regularly turn to God for help, when we're conscious of God's desire to live in communion with us, then we open ourselves to receiving and responding to his help to confront and over the cha- overcome the challenges we face each day. When our hearts, however, grow weary, when we distance ourselves from the Lord, when we try to do things on our own, we're at risk of giving up the good fight of faith altogether. To persevere faithfully in life, we must learn how to persevere faithfully in prayer. One of the biggest reasons why people give up on the faith is precisely because they've never learned how to pray, how to hear God speaking, how to receive his light and strength in life. 
This Sunday, we can focus on several of the means God has provided to train us. The first is practice in what the saints have called mental prayer, which is having a quiet one-on-one conversation with God. Treasuring that time is the most important appointment of the day. Second means of training is by learning how to pray sacred scripture so that we are able to tune in better to God's voice and say with the young Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. This is the whole process that's called sacred reading, or in Latin, Lexio Divina. For the Mike Schmitz Bible in a Year podcast has helped millions to learn how to pray with sacred scripture this way. The third means is the Holy Rosary. In this month of October, dedicated to Our Lady of the Rosary, we focus on this great tool of prayerful perseverance. The fourth means is the Mass which is the great persevering prayer of the church from the rising of the sun to its setting. The fifth training ground for perseverance in prayer is praying insistently for loved ones and their needs. Sometimes one of the most helpful things that can happen to us is to have a family member in need of prayers. Because if we pray for them with loving persistence, God, while attentively listening to our petitions, will transform us too. The sixth exercise is praying our daily work. To pray always means that we need to turn all we do into a prayer. To pray our work involves first offering everything we do to God as an acceptable sacrifice of Abel. We can unite our work to Jesus on the altar. We can explicitly offer our work for someone who has requested our prayers. The seventh and last training ground is praying with others. For us to pray unceasingly, we often need help and similarly need to give help to others. That's why it's important for us to pray together, because we can help each other persevere. Jesus incentivized praying with others, promising us that whenever two or more are gathered in his name, he will be in our midst. He taught us to pray not my Father, but the Our Father, to encourage us to come together. The more we pray together with others, the stronger our prayer will be, and the stronger our faith will be. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith in you and in me? This Sunday is a grace-filled opportunity to recognize that God will give us all the help we need to respond to his love. He'll give us the grace to increase our prayer, to persevere in that faithful union with him, so that we may persevere in the good fight for his kingdom. He will give us the help to make time for prayer, to hear his voice in sacred scripture, to enter Mary's contemplative school of the Holy Rosary, to pray the Mass as he did the first Mass, to pray for those in need, to pray our work, and to pray with others. This Sunday, the Lord Jesus will come to pray with us to the Father. And God the Father and the Son will send the Holy Spirit so that we may pray with living faith. So that when Jesus comes from heaven to the altar, he may find us truly faithful, ready to persevere in faithful, prayerful union with him through the valleys and mountains of life all the way until, God willing, we join the saints in the persevering eternal prayer of the heavenly Jerusalem. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 